normal um, earthly life into a life of promise, into a life of blessing, a life of faith and adventure in you. We thank you for that, Father. It makes life worth living. So we thank you, Lord, to open up your word to us and help us to understand much, much more about that life. In Jesus' name, amen and praise God. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. Well, today I thought I'd talk to you about the breath of God. The breath of God. Amen. I was thinking about the breathalyzer. That they <laughs> so if we had to, had God to take a breathalyzer, <laughs> he would register way off the charts. But I was thinking about that. I said, well, they analyze what's in in people's breath, and so I thought maybe we try and analyze what's in the breath of God. So he, yes, that's it. we. So we give God the breathalyzer. Of course, it's something he makes. We don't. He doesn't fit into our little realm of understanding. Of course, but we want to try as best we can to understand uh, what the breath of God, is, what's in it, what what He put in us. How does He breathe? When He breathes, what does that do? And on Earth, and and that kind of thing. So, um, I thought I'd first take you to Genesis chapter two. And verse 7, and that was one of the, well, that is the first time I see the breath of God mentioned. Now, <clears throat> it appears that God had created all kinds of living things just with his word. And so the, the creatures on the earth and so forth and so on. So we know that there is life-sustaining components in normal air. The air that's on the earth is endowed with a combination of gases. We know it's made of gases and they sustain life here on earth. Whenever uh, life uh, ceases on the earth it's because it's not compatible anymore with the atmosphere. So uh, there's some things that can can cause a person not to breathe anymore. Uh, animals can drown or they can dry out or something like that. And so <clears throat> whenever they're in a condition that's not compatible with their their normal condition, living condition, they will expire. And that is because of sin in the atmosphere. There's a contrary atmosphere here too uh, after the fall that was contrary to human life. But before that time, it appears that the the animals uh, lived. It doesn't uh, say any. there was a death of any creature or any created thing before that. Uh, before the fall of man. In Genesis 2.7 it says the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. A tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it looks like there was a variety of vegetation uh, on the earth at that time, at least in the garden. And it was all considered to be good and good for life. And so there was an atmosphere on the earth that was conducive to life because everything that was there was put there with God's intention that it would be good and it would be life-giving and life-sustaining. 
In verse 10 it says, A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it was parted and came to four heads. And they talk about this source of water that was there. But there was also, um, it looks like, um, uh, natural elements or natural um, uh, stones or, or hard materials on the earth that were pleasant to look at. If you think about all the different stones that were visible on the earth, we don't even get to see them anymore because of the curse there underneath the earth. So we got to dig to find something good and precious. And so that's part of the curse as well. And he says here, and the Lord took the man in verse 15 and put him into the garden to dress it and keep it. So God put man here to do what? Work. Absolutely. And so work has always been a very important part of human life. It gives life meaning. It gives life purpose. God works. The Bible says that. Uh, and <clears throat> Jesus, when he was here on the earth, he worked continually. You never saw him complain about being tired. You know, of course, he got his rest. He, he didn't have to complain about it. He just took his rest <laughs> when he needed it. He's <laughs> not like us. You know, we, we make a big thing out of everything. We're all a bunch of drama queens down here. And so he wasn't into any drama. He knew when to take his rest. He took his rest and got work. I mean, got rest, and then he continued working. And so the man was put there to dress it and keep it, which means he was there. Uh, the word dress really means to um, uh, tend it, to uh, make sure that it stayed in good condition. So if God gives us something, he puts work inside of us to make sure what we possess stays in good condition. If you don't keep things that you possess in good condition, it's because there's something interfering with the God aspect of your character you know these are things that are taught to to children when they're small you know parents teach your kids you know Johnny this is your box for your toys so when you're done playing I want you to put your toys back in your box and not leave them you know uh, cluttered you know and that kind of stuff so there's a sense that there is a God order to life you got me? Uh, there must be. See, there has to be that in people. There's somehow people get into this rebellious mentality about too many things in life. You know, we need to rebel against what's what's evil. You know, the Bible says to be innocent, uh, innocent of evil and be excellent in what's good. And so we have to, as believers, understand that there is an excellence that comes in what's good. And so when God put the man there, he put him there with the intention of keeping the garden and dressing it. And this is where people see the responsibility of Adam to keep the serpent distant from his wife. See, there was something in the way the serpent spoke that tipped them both off to, you, you got to think twice when this guy's around. You know, the Bible says he was subtle, which means that, see, subtlety in many ways is a, uh, um, a higher intelligence attribute. Anybody can be obvious and blatant, but people who are cunning, crafty, 
and operate in a higher See, that's a higher intelligence attribute, but when it's on a fallen character, it, there's wickedness there. And so here, Satan, because he was once anointed and sat at the right hand of the word and was at the disposal of the word all the time, he can operate in a higher intelligence, but because there's a subtlety there, you can't really tell if that's God's word he's saying or if there's something else there. And so when, when that was known to the man and the woman, the man's responsibility as the head and the leader was to keep the distance between the serpent and the woman so that the woman didn't pick that up and become deceived. Or Eve, when he talks to you, you need to come and talk to me and we'll go and ask God about what he says. See, that's always another option. There are many options instead of just listening and receiving. The other thing with subtlety is that it tends to cause meditation to happen in people. I wonder what they meant by that. You got me? There are people who, who um, they kind of capitalize in that. I mean, they, they make a, a, a gift of that. They make a living of that kind of stuff. Being vague, being subtle, keeping people coming back for more, keeping them intrigued, all that kind of stuff. They're preachers with, with that. They always give you a little nugget and then they want to keep you hanging on and make a big quiz out of something that's very obvious in the word. You know, there's some subtleties there. As it's just true. And so it's an attribute of humanity and human intelligence to put subtlety in what what they're saying. People who are good at entertaining or telling jokes or something like that have a, a gift of subtlety there. They can say something and then you think about it and then you laugh. You know, uh, the the best uh, best comedians knew timing you know so subtlety is a part of timing all that kind of stuff and so that's what the the um the serpent did he just played with their minds all the time and so they were constantly guessing it well what did he say did he say well they got and so confusion sets in with subtlety until the woman was not sure what god had said anymore and in confusion and deception she obeyed the the serpent. There was not rebellion there. That's not what that came from. It came from deception through subtlety. And so we, we all need to understand that we're all subject to that type of mental manipulation. <laughs> so God, when he breathed on the man, it says the breath of life came into him and he became a living soul. So after after he the man uh, and the woman uh, obeyed the serpent, that was the day God told them you will surely die. So the Lord commanded them saying in verse 16 of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He said it wasn't good for the man to be alone and he caused a deep sleep to come on the man and the man was able and God was able to create and fashion a woman from the rib of the man. Now why didn't he start all over again with the dust of the earth? (laughs) 
Because he, that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was not to recreate man all over again. So the woman is never a better addition of man. She's comes from man so they'll be compatible. You got me? And so because and, and woman was created with a purpose. God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. Why? Because he had gone through and tried to find one of the created beings that he was compatible with and couldn't find anything and so he made the woman from the man so they would have similar dna they would have similar attributes they would be similar in every way except that because she was taken from the man he'd be drawn to her as a missing component from his life and the two would become one flesh so the woman was created with purpose to complement, help, and complete the man. That's why men go looking. Yeah, I don't care what y'all say. Like, I know she's tricking me again. I'm not being subtle. I'm just reading from the Bible here. Being very direct. They're sitting out there sleeping, trying to act like they don't hate human no more. I, I talk to my microphone. And so the... <laughs> <laughs> Here's the purpose. Verse 18 tells you purpose from why the woman was created. Because it was not good. That was the only thing that God says isn't good in this creation. For man to be alone. And so he creates a woman. And he says I'll make, her a, make him a help suitable for him. She's a suitable helper. Now helper doesn't mean he's you know unintelligent unimaginative crippled and stupid it just means that because there's something missing from him she comes along to complete that so the missing help is something that he gave up to God so that he would have somebody to relate to and when they come back together again she helps his life a man who marries a woman who doesn't help his life I don't even understand what they get married for you know I just they're they're really deceived <laughs> you know they think they think life is about one thing and it, they find out it's about something else and so uh, out of the ground God formed every beast of the air folly there etc etc and asked Adam what the names would be and so he he um gave the names of everything but there was no name that would cause him to feel a completeness or you know it's that's a donkey it's a, these names were given as not not familiar to him not compatible with him not of the same you can tell that by the names of you know if you look at the the uh the scientific names of all the animals of all the created beings you'll see they they come from a different uh, family they come from a different genus a different species phylum they're all very very specific and none of the animals are of the same genus and species as man they're different so even those names that we call them now are different from the human names 
The same thing that Adam did. He called them in such a way God knew that there was no kinship, no familiarity, no compatibility. And so he created the woman so that man would have somebody that he could relate to. And she would have a relationship with him already prescribed by God as a sufficient helper. So that a man does not need two wives. He just needs one. He needs one. He needs to find one who is sufficient help and not find one that he likes this way because she ain't right over here and get two people involved in his life because there's one out there who fits the bill. And so he found that with Eve. And so God caused a deep sleep to come on the man, etc., and etc. And the rib that he took out of the man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And so it appears that once life was breathed into the man, it didn't have to be breathed a second time into the woman. Got it? So they share that one breath from God. And that one breath from God continues to sustain every human being that's born ever. So when God does one thing one time, it lasts forever. So we can say the breath of God is a, an eternal life force. Even in Adam, it was an eternal life force. Because God did not intend for Adam to have a short lifespan. He told him that he would live forever because he said in the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. So death didn't come in until Adam did something that was incompatible with the breath of God. And so what Adam did was something that God had to judge as not being good. Got me? So Adam's, Adam and Eve's disobedience of God was something that was not compatible with the general life atmosphere that was in the garden at that time. That's why God removed them from the garden, put them outside of the garden on earth because that atmosphere in the garden only supported good. So when God put them out of the garden, it was to extend their natural life. Because if he had left them there, what did he say? He put two cherubs there at the tree of life. He said, if they eat of this, which they're free to do still, he said, they'll live forever in this confused, deceived, and fallen state. And God didn't want that. He had another plan. He had a plan of redemption for the man and the woman. So he has a plan for his breath to continue to bring eternal life to man in a good state. You got me? If you're not following that, I'll repeat what I can. When God created man, everything he created, he said, was good. He said it was not good for man to be alone, so he corrected what was not good. And brought the woman to, and it was good again. Then, when the man and the woman disobeyed God, they did something that was not good because it brought death to them. God removed them from the garden, from the atmosphere that only tolerated good. And he put them into the earth where their life in death could be extended. Got me? So death was working slowly in them. And he gave them a covenant of eternal life through redemption. So in Genesis 3 you see the, the idea of a savior, a redeemer, an avenger 
of their their uh, shame and all of that stuff all rolled into one person and that person would come uh, centuries later in the person of Jesus Christ but the breath of God still carries eternal life in it you got me and so God wants us to have in his breath in the breath of God it seems that in the garden what he breathed into the man and the woman there was a quickening of their mortal bodies or a quickening of their uh, flesh bodies to bring life to that body and that life entailed it ignited all of the body systems in the man and the woman because you see that in in uh, creation now if you look at uh, a baby that is being formed in the mother's womb you see the breath of life in action you see it just like it what happens with a baby now over nine months period of time happened immediately with Adam and Eve when God had him had him formed it with his own hand and he reached down and breathed into him and what happens in a baby in nine months it happened immediately in him every body system came to life every function came to life it all functioned normally in him as an adult man or as a grown man same thing happened with Eve when God pulled her up or grabbed her by the hand I believe that was when she came to life because Jesus does it with people now he did it with people back in the day remember a little girl that had died he reached and grabbed her by the hand and stood her up on her feet and she began to walk and do things you know creation is not uh, something that's done in a different way over and over and over again see we see it alluded to many times when Jesus would heal people and perform miracles what he was doing he said I do what what I see my father do and so he been with his father in creation and he'd seen him pull Eve up by the hand and stand her up and let her walk around and be normal she ate and did all the things that normal be these things are being repeated in his ministry as he deals with people he deals with people the same throughout creation and so it, it appears that that's, that's what was done because we have no evidence anything else was done. And so all of these body systems come to life. So when the life of God or the breath of God comes into a person, it ignites all body systems. That's how the anointing, when it's administered to people, when they're sick, can bring healing to them. It's the same breath of God that, that comes to them and it begins to ignite body systems. When the word and the spirit come together, there's are two life forms of God. The breath of God and the word of God come together. They can minister life, health, and healing. That's why you can talk to people about the um, uh, the um, uh, meditating on the word Proverbs 4.20 to 22. You can tell them the word of God is medicine. Why? Because of this very thing. It was the breath of God in action again and it repeats itself over it. Because it's eternal. See that life doesn't go anywhere. That life is still here. And is when conditions are met. So that that life can do unhindered what it's supposed to do. It can bring about the very same results it's always brought about. So when, when God breathed into the man. Cells, organs. Everything in, in man's being was set in motion. To function the way God created him to function. 
Everything was put together the right way. And when God breathed his breath into it, then his plan of life was created. That life of God has in it life and faith. So it appears that that's what Adam and Eve received when God breathed on him. They received both life and they received faith. So when life comes in, the life of God comes into a person, then the faith of God comes in as well. So the faith of God begins to operate in Adam until he disobeys God. And then his the same faith, there's a remnant faith there, but it operates in dark ways. It begins to operate in selfish ways. So that man can kind of obey God a little bit. You remember before you got saved, before you got born again. You tried sometimes to do the right thing and then you gave up because there was no encouragement to continue to do it. Once you failed, uh, you had no place to go. So when you fail and have no place to go, you need a savior. You need you need another way out. You got me. Uh, when you when you try to do right and you find you can't do right and you do wrong and you feel bad about it, you don't. If you don't have a savior, you don't have an atonement. You don't have forgiveness. You don't have your conscience purged from dead works so that you can get up and try again. So that's what we have really in the atonement in the new covenant. You have that option to confess and repent and get up and try again. So you never had that before you had God. You see, you just had that sense of failure and you didn't know what else to do. And then you kept it to yourself because you wondered if anybody else felt that way. You know, you ever tried to obey God? And you say, what do you mean obey God? You know, you couldn't share that with, with many people. And so it, it's, it's just that way when darkness comes in, your faith is still there. But your faith is working in, in uh, confused, dark, and screwy ways. Sometimes you'll start out thinking you have a good idea and you, don't, and you wonder why it never works for you. Because you don't have a God component there to make your first faith work and work in the right way. And so, you know, for every person that is a multimillionaire, there is at least a million people who have tried it and failed at it and don't know how to get up and get the idea going again. So in, in natural life, using your faith will get you a certain level of accomplishment, but it won't take you over into victory. And so that's what Adam and every person that's born since them has experienced in life. Everybody starts out with a good idea. Uh, you want to be somebody. You want to have a good career. You want to have a good family. You want to do great things in life, etc., etc. But it never quite gets off the ground because of the darkness that your faith works in there's no light there and so the breath of God even though it's still in us as fallen people is not working at its maximum capacity because of the curse and because of darkness we know that the breath of God can give life to anything it can give life to anything Balaam's donkey was able to speak because the breath of God spoke to him to do certain things. So God really can put uh, attributes, any type of attribute he wants to, 
in any of his created beings uh, by his breath. And so we know that God's breath can do supernatural things, very unusual things. Uh, another example of the breath of God is Peter's shadow. It gave life certain kind of life to people who were sick. They were healed by walking in a shadow. Uh, the breath of God, because it's life-giving, uh, was imparted to Paul's prayer cloths and handkerchiefs that he would touch because people got special miracles and healing that way. So the breath of God, because it is quickening or life-giving, still has those properties. So anytime you see life-giving or quickening properties in any situation, it's because of that initial breath of God that still keeps working, working, working. Certain conditions have to be met, of course, but God will tell you what those conditions are so that you can receive of that attribute of his breath. So we said one attribute of the breath of God is that it gives life. That word quicken really means to make or exercise life. So we have this, this impression that the breath of God is God's life encapsulated in God. And when he releases it or exercises it towards something, then he makes alive or imposes his life on that object that he's breathing into. So God's breath is purposeful. It's imposing and it's imposed upon the object that he wants to quicken. So it's not like you can catch it out of anywhere. You got me? Because it has God's purpose behind it and it has God's character behind it. It's purposeful and it's, it's directed in a certain manner in a certain way. It's very discreet. Uh, I heard somebody uh, refer one time he, they explained the anointing understands what he wants to do and it's and he said the anointing is not some dumb substance that is just kind of oozing around and doesn't have a direction it doesn't have a mind it doesn't have intelligence it has all of that stuff so the breath of God really knows exactly what it's setting out to do and it's looking for an open door so that it can impose itself on that situation. If God's breath didn't impose itself, it didn't take over, and once the doors open, it kind of take over and bombard into that, we would be able to control it. Because how many times have you seen people come to the altar and want to be healed, but as soon as the power of God hits them, instead of them yielding to it, they start backing away from it and, and not receiving what God has for them. And so if you can coach people and tell them to receive it, if you can get people to not get in pride and argue with you at the altar and tell you they're receiving when you know they're not, if you're receiving, you came up here and asked to be healed, I laid hands on, you should get healed. But you're not letting it do its job. And so God's life, because it's imposing, can get people to accept it and once it's it comes in it comes in according to their proportion of faith so it's imposed and then it goes in as far as people will let it go in be, by their believing and when they stop believing it shorts out 
You got me? So that's how people don't get everything. See, when, when we say we want to be healed, what's in God's mind and in your mind, probably two different things. Because when you say healed, if you're in pain, you think you just want that pain off of you. But getting pain relieved is not a healing. And so when, when, when God can impose that, he can impose it according to your faith. But when your faith stops, the, the imposition stops. And so he can only impose as long as, as much as our faith will allow. That's how you can know where people's faith is. Because they will only let it come in. Like some people come to church because they feel bad. And when they feel better, they're ready to go home. Because that's what a lot of people are used to. That's why you see in some atmospheres where people are preaching, people can't wait to, to get in a seat close to the preacher so they can jump up and get excited. You know, and that's all they get because their faith is telling them I got to go to church and they have something in their mind that they want to get out of that experience. Everybody does. Many people who come, come because they have something in mind. They have an experience in mind. If you leave the door open for whatever God has for you, you get as much as you can get. Sometimes you come there with a need and you know what that need is and you want to get that need met. But you need to open the door as wide as you can so God can give you those things not only known but the unknown things that you need. And so that's a matter of trust. But there are some people who are just trained their minds to get certain things out of the message and that's all they want. Or some people will come, the latecomers I call them. They come late because they've, they've got some stupid idea in their head that if you can come late it makes you special. Well it makes you stupid. You know, and so they'll come stupid and start special. They'll come late and start making excuses. And once you train your mind to excuses, you'll have to repent and say you've been lying all along if you're going to correct that. So that's why people come late, come later. Well, I come for the word. Well, the praise and worship's too long. Well, the pastor's not here yet. They come with all kinds of, you know, a laundry list of excuses for why they're cheating themselves out of what God has planned for them. See, that's what it is. It's a cheat. And if you go that route long enough, you'll find out you can't just jump up and confess the word and get healed like you used to. You can't just do because you've been deceived into cheating yourself out of what God has for you. It starts out with a few minutes, then it's a half hour, then it's an hour, and then you have the service is gone. And so this is this is the way the devil that darkness you're using your faith in dark ways and you need to put your faith back into the light so that you can get everything God has for you and so the life of God ignites all of our body systems when it comes in when I said when babies are, are being formed in the womb all of those body systems are formed and they are functioning in the womb there is a function of a body while it is being formed. And you can see it. You, they perceive them now. They can tell a baby's heartbeat. They can tell that a baby has to, to move in certain positions. They're not sure why all of that. But babies tend to change position throughout different times of their gestation. 
some of them move too much you can tell because the mother's a little disturbed and sometimes they'll go to the doctor and say well I don't know you know the baby kicks but it's just disturbing to me you know sometimes and then they'll find out that the baby's vital signs are a little off something like that is off I prayed for women before and, and you know they'll say the baby just moves too much I can't rest I can't sleep or something like that and the Lord has told me tell that baby to stay there get in one position get comfortable and stay until I move it you got me and so they they find that there is a rest that they can achieve too but the baby has to have certain nutrients and so forth are vital for them at certain times of of their development so forth and so on first trimester seems to be extremely trying for the life of the child if there's something not right it will be known generally in the first three months and so these things are all planned by God his breath of life because it's gone into humanity within us is seed that reproduces after our own kind likeness from the cellular level up to the facial features so it's in our likeness from the inside out you got me what you see when everybody's gooing and cooing well, let me see who that baby like he don't look like nobody I know and you know that kind of thing that's just the out growth of what's inside see what's inside is what is contributed by both the parents from their seed that's that's in them and so the life or the breath of God the quickening life of God ignites all body systems and when the baby comes out and begins to breathe earth atmosphere then it takes on earth life before that it has womb life and after that it has earth life so the life of God or the breath of God we can say uh, regenerates because this baby has is born in the likeness of its parents the breath of God is also able to repair body systems so that within the breath of life or the breath of God is a reparative function so that if something goes wrong with your body it can in some instances repair itself for instance if you have a cut or you have a wound it, you know there's certain systems that go into to begin to function in overdrive so that your your body can be saved sometimes if your blood sugar's off it'll correct itself to a certain point you know after a certain point it, you know you might need medication or help or you need a healing from God but we your body is in a state of constant repair why because the breath of God is eternal it keeps you going your heart begins to beat when you when when it begins to be formed in your mother's womb and then it beats until the time you leave this earth so it must have the ability to repair itself you know if the muscle isn't as, as uh, toned as it used to be it will tone itself certain things if your blood pressure uh, accelerates because of ex excess adrenaline for one reason or the other it was able to calm itself back down again and so in the breath of God is eternal life and this life means to keep going so it has things in it to keep us going under stress under uh, conditions of lack of water lack of oxygen lack of all kinds of things there's restorative in there this restorative can be called up supernaturally in times of emergency 
Did you know that? There's some cases of people that shouldn't be alive. They don't know how they live. Well, nobody lives if they go without. Well, you know, we better quit searching in, in that earthquake building that you know the building that collapsed you know we know there are people in there but if we don't find them in x number of days after that period of time the likelihood of us finding anybody alive is gone and how many of you know there's always somebody especially a little baby that should have died day one you know they'll find a little baby still alive and so that's the eternal life force of God God gives us evidence all the time that he's working that his life, that his breath is still producing life, still regenerating life. The breath of God has restorative power as well. It's able to restore that which was missing. When, when people get limbs grown out supernaturally, like in healing meetings or something like that, the DNA and the cells for that are already there somewhere. It didn't go anywhere. It just needs to to have the breath of God imposed upon it to be brought back to life and start the the creative process all over again. There's no reason why it can't be done in a few moments. There's no reason why it can't be done in a couple of days. There's no reason why it can't be done. They found out that certain organs in the body can regenerate. The liver can. Where They never thought that could happen before. They're going to find that out about a lot of things as they study. As God opens up their understanding more. Of course you know when God opens up man's understanding he can always use it for good or bad. Right? So that's why we don't get a lot of understanding given to people who are just scientists. But God keeps that knowledge in his church. It's always going to be in the church. There's always going to be somebody in the church who's believing God for a miracle. That's why that, that knowledge is contained in the body of Christ. So that's, that's where it needs to be. Because that's where God can administer it and direct it supernaturally for the good. It'll always work out for the good. So God gives, we said he gave life and faith to the man and the woman in the garden in 1 Corinthians 15.45 let me see what I had in mind when I wrote that 1 Corinthians 15 I think it's As is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. We talked about that. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So Jesus is made a quickening or a life generating or life imposing spirit. So when you're born again, the life of God is imposed upon you. Not just as a living soul this time. Because you're already a living soul. But you are imposed as a quickening spirit. So not only is Jesus Christ a life giving spirit. But we who are his body are part of that life giving spirit as well. So then we can do the same thing that he did. And cause the spirit of God to be imposed upon other people. That's why he tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel so that I can quicken or make alive other people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so, <clears throat> um, 
that word quickening also means to keep alive. Not just make alive and be subject to death, but to keep alive. So we talked about the regenerative aspects of eternal life. It's able to keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. That's why it's good to pray for people when when anything happens, you know, because that breath of God is able to make them come alive again to the works of God. To the desire to serve God. You know that's why we pray for backsliders. You know you get mad at people to get stupid. But they need prayer. You know they don't need more judgment. And rejection and all that kind of stuff. Even though you can't have fellowship with them. Because they're serving a different. You know they're under the influence of a different spirit. But you can certainly intercede for them. And that's what we do. And so. And then that just from that one initial breath of God. We get all of that folks. All of that until the time of course you come into the knowledge of Christ and you can receive more that God has for you. Um, the, the, the breath of God that brings life also consumes life. You got me? It'll consume wickedness. In Job chapter 4 you see that. I thought I'd wait till I go through this but I wrote it down next so it must have been the next thought I had. Job 4, verse 9, says, By the blast of God, they, it's talking about the wicked, that's mentioned in uh, 8, talking about they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness. It says, By the blast of God, they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils, they are consumed. So that same breath of God that brings life and goodness and quickens and brings to life um, a, a human or a mortal body or anything that it touches really will also consume wickedness. You see that in in uh, in Exodus, uh, the I think it's twelfth chapter of Exodus, where Pharaoh, because they are following God's people, who have uh, they are under the power of God's spirit or God's wind or God's breath. That same blast of God that parted the Red Sea for the righteous to come through, also closed up on the wicked when they tried to pass through it as well. And so the same spirit that brings life to you will bring death to those who are in the mind of wickedness that's we call that conviction amen they get under conviction for their sins and it's a good thing because it will eventually lead them to understand the difference between right and wrong of course Pharaoh's army had no they were given many many chances prior to that and there were many Egyptians that came over with the Hebrew people. Because it said that Moses had a mixed multitude among his company. And so the in in that option to come or 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 be separated by the blood that was over the doorpost was offered to the neighbors, the servants, anybody else that would come under that doorway were preserved from, from death and destruction, not only of the death of the firstborn, but if they went out with the Hebrews as well, they were under the same protection and covering as they were. And so when when that 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 sea parted after the last 
righteous person was across there and it and it closed up it closed up to consume wickedness so the same spirit that brings us life and brings us peace and joy and happiness and all the fruit of the spirit because we have a covenant for that you don't have a covenant for that you're outside of that covenant you can receive it but you have to come into the covenant of God so that spirit the same makes us alive can kill in Acts chapter 5 we see a couple of believers who transgress God's law and under the breath of God that was available to the early church you see a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira really they are lying in the offering they're saying they're giving some it's the same thing as if you we make a pledge and don't fulfill it and who hasn't shot their mouth off and said they were going to give to God and didn't do it I think we all do it but they were conspiring to lie to the Holy Ghost who had set up that system that everybody would give what they owed but they gave it voluntarily you see what they did was that it was common for believers because they believed very strongly in the teachings of Jesus and they many of them had seen Jesus when he walked the earth there was a strong commitment to the gospel and a strong commitment to their churches and so forth and so on they were daily under the apostles doctrine and prayer they didn't lie about these things and so because there was so much truth in the atmosphere uh, anything that wasn't true was quickly judged so the standard was truth it wasn't giving it was truth and so because the standard was truth and not lies it was easy for a lie to be exposed and quickly judged it was a delicate time in the birth of the church and God could not tolerate lies and so that was what was judged God didn't care what they were lying about they just happened to be lying about money Peter said it he said how did you conspire in your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit they thought they were just dealing with people got me it's, it's very very easy to slip over into not seeing God anymore but seeing people especially when you're oriented to noticing how do they respond to me what do they say how do they talk that kind of stuff and so I think they got caught up in saying they wanted to give it and then when they got the money in their hands they kept part of it and they were judged for it immediately and so that brought a great deal of fear on everybody in that whole town and they knew that God was with these people and and sometimes God would have to do those things so that the people would re be respected and protected you know so these things are, are important when God does and he judges that's God's business you know and so uh, but you need to know that in the breath of God is what we said a quickening life-giving spirit there was a spirit of faith there because Adam and Eve uh, were were uh, commanded to use their faith to obey God not to disobey God but also there's a consuming fire there that consumes wickedness if it that if there's that component that consumes wickedness there must be an intelligence there to judge so in the breath of God is intelligence to judge right and wrong good and evil all of those things so in us when we receive the quickening 
life-giving, breath-giving spirit of God is an intelligence that is able to judge right and wrong. The Bible says for us not to judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. It doesn't say anything about not judging at all. You'd have to be crazy. You couldn't even live a day without being able to judge. When you judge something, you make a decision about it. Is it right or is it wrong? Do I get involved in it or don't I? So when the breath of God comes into your life, you have that ability. Even even the Bible says even those without the law, like the sinner, has a sense and a conviction in his conscience when he's doing the wrong thing. Homosexuals know they're wrong. What they're on now is a crusade to make other people say they're right so they can feel right. You see, but they know they're wrong. The Book of Romans tells you very clearly that that's that's what's that's true, and so when when the breath of God comes into you, it gives you intelligence to judge and discern, gives you judgment and discernment, and it's just not one faceted. It's just not life and good in the fruit of the spirit all the time. There are other things involved in the breath of God. In um. Romans 8.11 says that his spirit quickens our mortal bodies. That is, these bodies that are deteriorating every day. They're getting older every day. They're showing signs of wear. You know, the tent shows signs of wear. And so, <laughs> so, but God makes them alive by his spirit. Huh? You know, many times people, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll tell people, I said, honey, I ain't as young as I used to be. And people look at you funny. And I forget that God keeps renewing your youth every day. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just no difference to me. But, you know, if I need to pull the the, the elderly gun out, I pull it out on people. Get back. I got to hold on to that wall. Let me go here. <laughs> I did I did that last night to this girl. <laughs> she, was, she believed me cuz she got she said, "Who is slippery there?" She had a cigarette in this hand and she was holding me back. Let me help you. I said, "Oh, second thought, let me have my wall and let me help you. I pray for you get rid of them cigarettes." But anyway, yeah, it was all good. <laughs> but you know, you you believe God to renew your youth every day cuz you need it. You know, it's not just for, for primping and, you know, I don't want to look old. Nobody wants do, does want to. But your youth, it, if you uh, have your youth renewed, you have a youthful uh, 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 ability of stamina. That's what you want. You want to, your mind to be as sharp as it was when you were younger. You want to be able to think. You want to be able to speak and get around all those things. So part of, part of all of that is having one's youth renewed. So that's, you know, you believe God for that. It's kind of interesting. There, were, there are people who have visited heaven. They've had trips to heaven, come back to earth to talk about it. One of them said that when he got to heaven, he said everybody looked the age of Jesus when he left the earth in their 30s. I said, you kidding me? I can't wait. <laughs> Give me the first ticket out if I can get one. You know, of course, you don't go until God's done with you, but you know what I'm saying. You know, that gives you something to look forward to. <laughs> Especially if you pass 30 and way past 30. So anyway. <laughs> I'm telling you. 
<laughs> we we passed that stop a lot. <laughs> yeah, we've been on the train a lot of years. Past 30 a lot of years ago. John 6, 63, if you look at that, talks about where <clears throat> the life-giving properties of the Spirit of God. Jesus says here, he says, <clears throat> it is the Spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. He said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So really, what he's saying here, you've got a choice of to what you focus on. He said, your flesh will do whatever either your spirit or your flesh tell it to do. He said, but it's a spirit that gives life. So if you want your life to increase, you want your life to be better, you feed your spirit. You do things that edify your spirit and build up your spirit. And that's why sometimes you'll see people that love God and serve God can do very unusual things. Oftentimes uh, um, they, can, they have the stamina to go for long periods of time with very little rest serving God. Uh, they can go, you, you can take a, a comfortable Christian from a comfortable middle class or upper class uh, American life and put them in a very remote location over who knows where for extended periods of time and they show no they show no grief for it, you know, because their spirit is compelling their body to cooperate with what the spirit wants to do. Instead of you letting your flesh and your body dictate everything, you let your spirit take over and command your body to come in line with it. And so this is how to live. This is what he tells them. He says the flesh, it's the spirit that brings alive. Your spirit is the thing that brings you to life every day. If God didn't quicken your spirit, if he didn't speak to your spirit, if he didn't put his word in your spirit and instruct you and give you intelligence as to what you, to do, your spirit, your body wouldn't do anything. It just do whatever it felt like doing or didn't feel like doing. And so we have to realize your spirit is, uh, if you feed your spirit and you allow your spirit to take over and control things, your spirit is what brings life to you. So it's a spirit that gives life. Romans 4.17 says that God quickens the dead even. So there is a quickening of God's spirit that can bring the dead back to life. You see that so often in the ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> he stops at a funeral and it doesn't appear that anybody asked him to get involved. He just does it. And so it looks as though there are some sovereign or almost sovereign acts of God that you just can't say, well, somebody prayed or something. Well, we know the woman because this kid was her only son. We see that Jesus has a specific kinship there because he would be the oldest son of his mother and he would die and leave her uh, a, a grieving grieving mother of a dead son so we see a connection there but still that's that's not faith for the person that's receiving that you got me you don't know if somebody's prayed ahead of time or something like that but there's no indication of how that happened but he stops his funeral and gets this boy up and, and gives him back to his mother it just wasn't his time that's that's the only thing you can say. If it were his time, he'd he'll you know he'd have been on to the graveyard, but um, it just wasn't his time. So 
God's eternal life lasts until he withdraws it. God's eternal life lasts in us until he withdraws it. He's appointed to every person that's born a certain length of days. You can't hasten it. You can't postpone it. It's just there. And it's known from, from the beginning of time. Death can try and claim us, but God must release us to death. As long as God is holding on to us in life in this this realm, then we will have the eternal life of God because it lasts forever. And even though death can claim us from this earth, eternal life will raise us up into life in heaven with God. So it brings us into the presence of the Lord. And when, once death claims us, death escorts us really into the presence of the Lord. And so as when you're born again, that eternal life quickens you to go on and on and, and be raised up from the dead. Romans 8.11 says that God quickens our mortal bodies by his spirit. So the breath of God is the same thing as the spirit of God. So he quickens our mortal bodies by his spirit. Whenever God's spirit is is in contact with a human person, it brings life. You can tell that by, you know, when you when the the room is anointed and during worship and you come into it, you get quickened by his spirit you know you you raise your hands you don't just do that because you want to you've been prompted by his spirit that's the quickening power it brought life to that hand that was hanging down and it began to speak by his intelligence and say you better get some of this because you're going to need it you got me or you better enjoy it in <laughs> this atmosphere you can enjoy it now it's very different in a corporate setting even than it is in your personal worship time. It's more compelling in a corporate setting because God has assembled people for purpose. When there's a purpose involved, it's a lot more compelling. So um, he quickens our mortal bodies by his spirit. <clears throat> Jesus, let me see. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the quickening power of the Spirit of God. It was embodied in him. When he preached, he quickened people with the word and the Spirit. People followed him because of the life that he had in him. In uh, John 6, verse 68, 67, Jesus said, "This is. Uh, let me start with the beginning of the, the discourse because it's kind of important. People would follow Jesus as long as they desired to follow him. That's true about us. Uh, you can quit following the Lord anytime. You and I both know lots of people who do. Start out great. Have a ministry and church all the time. Very devoted to God. And then little by little by little by little get stolen away. And so Jesus teaches in, in John chapter 6 verse 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he'll live forever. Talking about receiving Christ in the new covenant by the Holy Spirit. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now this is pretty 
pretty cut and dry, pretty explicit. He says you have to partake of this or eat of this or voluntarily give your life in exchange for mine and you'll have eternal life. He's giving it in natural examples because he's dealing with people who don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them to explain things. So he has to bring it down a little bit to bring it up again. And so he says the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well those people are going to argue anyway. They argue with a stop sign. As Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you except you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in him. So that means eating the flesh means to eat the word. Drinking his blood means to receive the blood of his of his Holy Spirit. See his natural blood was shed and in response was given a spiritual blood which is the Holy Spirit which is what we live by. He, he, he says when he was resurrected he said I'm flesh and bone now not flesh and blood. That blood was spilled out never to return again. But how do you live Jesus? I live by the Spirit. So this is the blood of my resurrection now. I live by the Spirit and that's the same Spirit that lives in you now. Which means I can never be killed again. I did that one time forever. We ain't going that way no more. And so he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. It's very simple. And I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. In other words, if you, if you receive Christ, you'll never thirst again. Because that, that, that food in you will draw you to a place where it can be replenished, restored, and regenerated and renewed over and over. And so he says, there's no ending to this what I put in you this time okay he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I dwell in him as the living father has sent me and I live by the father so that he who eats of me he shall live by me this is that bread which came down from heaven he's kind of jogged their memories remember the manna that came down and only lasted one day well this is an everlasting manna this is the the six day manna that lasted at least until the seventh day he said this is that bread which came down from heaven not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead he that eats this bread will live forever so he's saying I'm bringing you a better covenant with better promises it's going to be eternal in nature it's not going to stop it's not going to be dependent upon the law and the shedding of blood over and over and over again I shed my blood and give my body one time for all these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum so he's dealing with a really dead crowd there so he has to really break it down break it down in old Hebrew language for them to get the benefit of it. Many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said. They said this is a hard saying who can hear it. Now when, when that happens. When you get something from God. That's hard for you either to accept or understand. What do you do? You get a choice. You either follow him and get more understanding or you quit following because it's just, you know, this is too much this time. It's too hard to follow. So this is the too hard to follow Jesus crowd. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said to them, does this offend you? He said, what and if I shall see the son of man ascend up where he was before? 
it is the spirit that quickens the flesh the spirit that quickens the flesh profits nothing the words I speak to you they are spirit and they are life in other words you can accept this you you just keep following me and you'll be able to accept this he says but there are some of you that don't believe in other words you refuse to believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that that believed not and who should betray him and he said therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of him to him of my father from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him when you talk about a blood covenant and you talk about uh, a commitment to life this is what they were sensing this is not just Jesus for the good times so we can tell Caesar we don't want to pay taxes or we can tell the synagogue people we don't want to come and give the offerings and so forth this is not just good time Jesus this is Jesus for all times and they don't want a commitment these are people who don't want the covenant commitment to God you'll find people like that now Uh, I'm just not ready you know, I, I know it's better for me to serve God, but I'm not ready yet. You know, they want to live that life of sin. They don't want to make a commitment. They want don't want to be nailed down. And so when Jesus did this, he even questioned the twelve and he said, Will you also go away? And Peter answered him, and Lord, he said, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So this is what they lived off of. They lived off of his words because his words were life-giving. They were quickening. They quickened them and kept, kept them alive and kept them full of hope as long as he was alive. And you'll see that when, when he was crucified, they all quit following him. Because they looked at him in the flesh as the source of life. They didn't understand that he would be raised again from the dead. And by his spirit he would give them life. Even though he tells them over and over and over again. People can hear but they still have something else in their brains that they're focused on. And if the two of them don't mesh sometimes they take what's in their brain and not what's in their heart. It's just normal. And so... He said, we believe that you said you are certainly the Christ, the son of the living God. And and so he goes on to to embellish and tell how much he he loves the Lord and wants to accept. But but the point I'm trying to get you to see here is that when Jesus walked the earth, the breath of God was in him and that brought life to these people. That's how they live. That's why he had so many people following him without a megaphone without television without anything except a borrowed boat sometimes or whatever he did they followed him wherever he went because there was the eternal life of God and so what that life did was it quickened everybody it made them alive they came into a, a place where they had hope they had joy they had understanding they had excitement in life all of those things and they looked forward to it day after day after day Some of them quit because he asked for a personal commitment. The young man that was very wealthy. He found out what it would do so that not just he could follow Jesus in this life. But he said I want eternal life. In other words I want to live with you forever. What do I have to do? And whenever it was posed to people about the commitment aspect. The covenant aspect. Anything like that. Many people would shy away because they didn't want to give up their life for 
to live a life for God or something they didn't know what what it would entail but they knew it was going to cost them something as long as it's free people want to follow but when they talk about what the cost is you'll find many of them wanting to turn back and so when Jesus lived he lived with the breath of God in him and that breath gave life to everybody that heard him uh, and all of those things so when they quit accepting life they stopped following him They, they refused the covenant they refused the commitment they refused to give their lives totally to the Lord and, and give up the way they were living so that they could live for him. The next time we see the breath of life given that I wanted to show you is in John 20. let see another property of the breath of God. In John 20 verse 22. How are we doing Miss Juana? 20, 22. Oh, okay. But like I said, it's probably be the last one I'll show you. Uh, he said, this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's going to appear to his disciples. It says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were, were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. Now, that peace really means an end of animosity or an end of strife or an end of contention between two parties. That really meant that he had nothing against them. They were friends. He was coming to them as friend, not as somebody who's going to get you for what y'all did to me. Remember three days ago? (laughs) Thank God he's not like us. He had forgiven them before he died. So really he remembers their sin no more. But they remember it. You got me? It's so important that you receive the atonement. That you remember your sins no more. That's the most important thing. God does his part. But what we need to do is have enough relationship with God where we know it. You got me? And you can come to him boldly to the throne because you know your sins are forgiven. And so it says uh, in... uh, Okay, so he said, Peace be unto you. When he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So what he's doing is he's making a new covenant with them. He's inviting them into a new covenant. This covenant begins... By him not remembering their sins anymore. That's very important to understand. This is a purpose of this encounter that he's having with the disciples. It's all about forgiveness. And it's all about starting with the slate wiped clean. And it's all about him not remembering anything. And they've done things personally to the Lord that should have been worthy because they broke covenant with him. Remember the Last Supper where they all were, you know, and we all like that. And, you know, we everybody fist bumping, high five, everybody else all around the table and so forth. And so, and Judas betrayed him as a brother, as somebody who was not to 
lay hands on. When you cut covenant with somebody, that meant peace and no fighting, no striving. You were like one person from one generation to the next. So your children were even in that covenant and your offspring were in that covenant. And so when Judas betrayed him and caused his death, he totally broke covenant with him. That is definitely against him. The avenger of the blood, a blood could have gone after him to kill him, but he committed suicide. But what about his descendants? So his descendants descendants are are cleared because we have a new covenant now it's not the old covenant of retribution and the old covenant of vengeance but it's a new covenant of forgiveness and in the way jesus starts it off is by forgiving all of them because they all turn their backs on him what is the the man-to-man covenant says that i will avenge you of your enemies down to the last man It says, whoever hurts you, I hurt them, I go after them. So really, the disciple should have been after Pilate or the the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They could have had a a bunch of people they were going after. But Jesus says, that's been done away with. You couldn't fulfill it anyway. Because when I was looking for y'all brothers to come, he wasn't looking for anybody help from them. He knew what they would do. But as as just to show them that that was a covenant that was weak and it needed to be done away with. So we're glad, Jesus, that you have forgiven us. And when he says, peace be unto you, they know what that means. That's not just, you know, peace out, but that means that you are forgiven. You sat at that table with me and you pledged to be my friend forever and you broke that, but that's forgiven. And so that's why this covenant works so well in the early church. That's why. Because it started out with everybody knowing they had a clean slate. If the disciples were now forgiven and they have received of eternal life again, then they know this is a much higher covenant than the one that they all broke. And so he says to them, peace be unto you as my father has sent me, so even send I you. And when he said that, he breathed on them. So here's the breath of God again, coming into mortal man, not quickening him for the first time like he did with Adam. They said the first Adam was a living soul, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Much stronger covenant. And so he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. That's all he could offer them at that time. But there was more to come. Anybody who's born again needs to know if you've only received the the Holy Spirit in the measure that you know as forgiveness of sins, there's more to come. And so we know that that he the Bible says he would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's different from this. This is the Bethany experience. All Baptists can tell you about this. Got me? This is what they hang their hat on. <clears throat> When you ask him, have you received the Holy Ghost? Yeah, I got it. Just like this. You know, and he says, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you forget, retain, they are retained. So what that means is that when you receive this breath of God, it empowers you to forgive sins and it, it, it will allow you to keep sins in. So it's really introducing them to a priesthood. 
when he says as the father has sent me even so I send I you so that means you have a priesthood that's beginning here and it's beginning with the remission of sins so the priesthood of Jesus begins with what the remission of sins you don't ask anybody if they want to pray in tongues until they you always ask have you been born again Everybody, has you ever received Christ as your personal Savior? You have to receive the atonement before you can receive anything else. Or you have to receive knowledge of the atonement. Some people receive both at the same time. They, I've seen people get introduced to Christ and get baptized in the Holy Spirit all in one shot. But they have to understand that they are repenting of their sins. That's a condition for receiving the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come into somebody. He's not going to live with somebody who's going to go out and sin again. Because that is contrary to eternal life. We're right back in the garden again if there's going to be tolerated. You understand me? So there's an intelligence in God and the Holy Spirit when he breathes on us and we receive that first empowerment of God that we understand right, wrong, good, bad, sin, not sin. Anybody who's first born again will tell you they are so conscious of, am I saved? Remember when you said a bad word when you first received Christ, you wondered if your salvation left. We all wanted to know what's the unpardonable sin. Wait, did I did it? Do I did I do it yet? Somehow, after you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, all that goes away, doesn't it? Huh? You have peace with God, eternal peace. And so He says, "I'm going to send you into the world." And then He tells them to to go to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high. So we don't have time to talk about that right now, but we'll talk about that the next time. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your your word and for understanding. And we thank you, Lord, for the breath of God. And that we don't take whatever you do for us for granted. We know that it comes for a purpose. We know that it comes with goodness in mind, graciousness in mind, good fruit in mind eternity in mind that you created us to live forever and you're making good on that all of those who will obey your command not to eat of that tree you give us eternal life and you mean it and we thank you for it lord in jesus name amen praise god if anybody wants prayer 